We're in First John, chapter five. As we do each week, I want to go and look and see something in John's life that's recorded for us elsewhere in Scripture that informs our text today. And uh, this one was an easy one. I didn't have to think too long and hard to say, um, what's, what's an event in, in John's life that informs on this? And it's in Matthew chapter 3. We are fortunate to have a lot of John's life recorded for us. When you're in public ministry, that happens. You know, your things get told. But things are out there. And it's always kind of encouraging in that way. And so we have that with John. In John chapter 3, it's the, the start of uh, Jesus' public ministry. So I'm going to read uh, verse 13 through 17. So John, or sorry, Matthew 3, verse 13 says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So this John in this passage is John the Baptist, verse 14. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it. Uh, to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So so this is the uh, start of Jesus' public ministry after uh, this uh, public baptism. Uh, the very next chapter, he is driven, as pretty much he is led by the Spirit, you know, taken uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is and fast for 40 days and he is tempted and he is tested and he is tried and uh, he comes through unscathed, you know, by the devil himself out there. But at his baptism here, it's, his, um, it's at the end of John the Baptist ministry. It's, it's the culmination, it's why he was there. Um, the Old Testament left us in Micah with the, or Malachi, uh, telling us that a forerunner was coming, one like uh, the spirit of Elijah, one, one who's going to awaken people and, and, and make people know, you know that something is going on. And so John the Baptist is that. He's the forerunner that was promised. After 400 years, he walks onto the stage. He dresses funny. He looks funny. And he, he has a bold message. He's not politically correct. He says it as it is. He tells you how it is. And uh, he's trying to stir the people up to get back to the basics, to get back to the core, to remember Messiah is coming. And so he's, he's stirring all that, and he's coming very soon, right there. Right there. He's telling them to wake up. Wake up out of your slumber. Wake up, people. He is coming. Put your eyes on to see. So it's even more amazing how many didn't see when you have a forerunner, and you have one there telling you, here he is coming. But verse 13 is the... His ministry's answer. And then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So John, um, John the apostle, had been there. He had heard John the Baptist, uh, the, the wild man out on the Jordan, had, had made such a ruckus that him and his co-workers had gone. You know, Peter and Andrew and others had been out there to hear him uh, while he had been preaching. And so they were... Students, you know, they were attuned to the time. Uh, they were sensitive to the time that God is doing something, that we have a prophet again. Um, and we can identify with this. I mean, we can identify with this time. Uh, can you imagine if someone said that they were a prophet today? We would be skeptical, right? We'd have to listen a little bit, and then we'd have to test it to see, is that right? Is that really going on? You know, we, we would examine these things. And, and uh, uh, so we need to be listening. You know, are there were, is it that way? And so they're that way. They're skeptical. They're testing. You know, is it the time? Are these signs? Is that's what? That's the day in which we are. You know, the time is at hand. We're told, and and we're watching, and we're seeing, and it's just on such 
a pedal to the metal forefront that, that Christ's return is very, very near, that we should be the same. You know, we, we should have the same kind of warning. We should be awake and we should be aware that things are going on, that, that God is moving, that the spiritual uh, dimension is more alive. I was reading a headline uh, yesterday and I was saving it on my phone. The number one growing religion among millennials right now is spiritism or, or spiritualism or Wiccan, you know, all this witchcraft, uh, all that that's going on. They're more aware to that. They say that they are all religious and they are all spiritual, but they do not want Christianity. They do not want organized religion in this way. They want to have these, these mystical religions. There's a little, uh, on a lark, I, I got Scooby uh, Bark Box where they'd send them a little box of treats. I was supposed to be for one time, but apparently once you get on there, hey, good luck getting off the subscription list. So he got stuff from New York and this and everything. And, you know, I know there's food subscriptions in this way. They have one that's called a, a mystic one where they send you different herbs and all the different rocks and idols and all these things that you get each month. And it's, it's a growing popularity. It's going, Gwyneth Paltrow has a store out there that's selling all these mystical witchcraft things that's going on. And, uh, and a lot of it's kind of creeping in in a lot of different areas. And so it, it's a growing thing. People, they, they don't want, they're very, <laughs> there's a void there because God made us with that, but they're filling it with anything but him. I mean, you have the witches that are united and making curses against the president out there. So we have, we have all this that's going on. And so that, that, that we are in a time when it's awake, but, you know, we got to watch what we fill it with. We've got to point it to him. And so we are very much a time that I can remember in the 70s as a teenager. Well, I've been a very late, late early, early teenagers, reading tracts about what it would be like and how they were going, reading Hal Lindsey's book on uh, so the early 80s there, what, 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 what it would be like. And I can remember just thinking, how can we get back to astrology? How, how would we go back to uh, th- these, these, these pagan things? You know, we know, we, we know so much more. But man, we are there, and we are there in spades. And so the, uh, the dumbing down that has been going on, the, the, uh, the replacing, the denying of God has been long enough and generational enough that it, it is being instilled in them that they're like, hey, we know there's something, we know it's this, but we're going to take that because I can do everything that's fun with it. And so it's been a slow process, but it's been within my lifetime I've watched the turn uh, to where they'll embrace anything but God. But verse 14 says that here, as Jesus comes to uh, culminate you know, and say, here I am, you, you've told them that I'm coming. He says, John the Baptist here says that uh, I'm not worthy. And John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? He says, I'm the one who needs baptized by you, I don't, not me doing you, but, See, because his message was, you can look at chapter 2 of, uh, or sorry, verse th- 2 of chapter 3, and his message was, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is, ha- is, is at hand. His, his message was repentance. His message was prepare. Jesus doesn't need to repent. He's sinless. That's what he comes and he proves. He is tested. He has tried. And throughout his whole life, he shows that he is the sinless son of God to the point where Pilate's like, I can't find any fault in him. And he washes his hand. But that's not why he's being baptized. He's not being baptized for repentance. See, we are baptized um, to be identify with Jesus Christ, to show that we have repented. You know, repent ye, and then be baptized, it tells us. But we are being identified with Jesus Christ, the one who died, the one who was buried, the one who rose again. We are being identified with him. He did this, I'm doing this. And so it's, it's, it's a, an act that was performed so that we can identify with him. I want to identify with Jesus' burial. I want to identify with Jesus' resurrection. I want to symbolize to you that Brian was dead. Now Brian is alive again. And so there's a lot going on with it. And Jesus is doing that too. He's identifying, but he's identifying with us. He's identifying with humanity. He is showing the world that he is one of us, that he is human, that he is a man. And he's also being obedient. 
I want my believers to be obedient, and I got to start my public ministry, and before you can have a very public ministry, you have to follow in believer's baptism. You have to do a public act. The first time we preach out loud, baptism is our first public ministry, an act of obedience. Um, God tells us to do it, so we do it. Now he can really use you after you've done that, after you've humbled yourself to that point, to come forward and publicly identify with him, now uh, God can use you in a public ministry. And there's something else here, too. So he's identifying with humans. He's identifying with us. He's, he's coming the way that he tells us to go. It's not for his salvation. It's identif- identity. He's saying that he is a man. But we also have in this passage a rare glimpse of the Trinity. Verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And so in this verse, we have Jesus the Son being baptized, the second person of the Trinity. We have the Spirit that is descending and appearing like a dove. Um, I'm sure they're just like on a loss for words to say what it was like. I, I, don't, I guess that's probably the closest thing that you can get. And it says it lights upon him. Um, Lighting, we talk about that like a bird lighting on a limb. You know, it means landing in that way, and it, and it does do that, like a bird landing on the limb. But it also here in this specific instance, the Greek word is used, means to come and appear publicly. So the Holy Spirit comes on him. So I don't know if Jesus glowed a little bit, kind of like he did at the Mount of Transfiguration, that he had a literal light on him that he was lighting in that way. But So maybe he's shown something supernatural happened as, this, as the Spirit came down upon him, like a dove, however the light came down and it came upon him as he came up. You know, showing this. Then verse 17 says, And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And here we have the Father speaking audibly where people can hear it. I mean, they could hear it right there. It's like we have this going on. They're like, what's that that's going on? That comes on Jesus Christ as he comes out of the water, that the Spirit lights on him, and then God says this audibly. There's a few times in Scripture where God speaks out to a large crowd in that way. So we have all three in one place at the, place at the, at the baptism of Jesus. I think with that as our context, we can go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 5 just to give us a little context of who he's speaking about, Jesus. But uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 5 says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that beareth, uh, he, this is he that came by water, and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Stop right there. um, Verse 6 talks about he that came by water and blood. Uh, you can spend a week on the debate on what is he talking about. <laughs> What's he trying to say? He said, I am sure that as John wrote this, he is writing to make it clear to us. But scholars sure have muddied the water. They've trampled all around it to the point where he stirred all up like, What's he talking about here? And so I'm going to pass over all those arguments and all the different views that people have out there and try to bring it down to what I think is clear and and how I came to the conclusion of what it is. Uh, Because there's a lot of arguments, and there's a lot of good arguments for for the different things, but I took it in this. One, John's writing this. And by the time we've got to chapter 5 here, I, I don't know 
how many times that we've gone back and looked at pieces of John's life and who he is and what's important to him. And we just looked at one this morning uh, there at the Trinity, or out there seeing the Trinity and the baptism of Jesus Christ. So uh, John is writing this, and he's writing it to us, the family. Those who are active in serving the Lord, to encourage them on who they are serving, to encourage them um, so that they have confidence on who God is, who Jesus is, and who he really is, so that we have confidence in that, so we can go out and not be afraid of what the enemy is going to say, because these verses are attacked by specifically the Jehovah Witnesses. They, they will attack these scriptures a lot. And, so, um, and thirdly, the main reason why John is writing this is that it's in opposition to the Gnostics, against Gnosticism. So we need to remind ourselves who they are. And I think that that is the key that unlocks what he's talking about here. The Gnostics said that Jesus was not a man, that he was a spirit. Because the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. You can't have good and evil together. Now we have that and they acknowledge that they had that, but they were saying you can't reform the flesh and so the flesh can do whatever it wants as long as spiritually that you're good. Well, I can think about all the good things, but in my flesh I can do all bad things. That's fine with them. That's not what the Bible says. We are to bring the flesh into subjection, right? We are to bring it under control. We are, we are a body-soul unity, but we are trying to be united in it. And again, that's the fall. When the fall happened, uh, the flesh does what it does, and the spirit, and we're trying to bring it together after salvation. We're, we're trying to win out in the battle uh, of sin more. But they said that the flesh was corrupt, and that Jesus, they had no problem thinking that Jesus was God. They had problems thinking that Jesus was a man. Now, in our day and age, we have no problem thinking that Jesus was a man. In our culture, they have problems saying that Jesus is God. And so there's always some division going on because Satan is good at what he does. And so, so they had no problem with his divinity. They had a problem with his humanity, where in our day and age, most people will say that, yeah, Jesus was a man. He was not God. No, he was God-man. He was both. He's 100% man. He was 100% God. Uh, and their phrase, their most popular phrase, was that when Jesus walked on, on the earth, he left no footprints. And John is adamantly against that. He tells us time and time again that he was an eyewitness, that he was close to Jesus, all the things that happened on. And Jesus is adamant that this is a lie, and this is why he's written the book. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he starts out this letter hitting this head on. So John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. He goes, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ, and here's what it is. You can see him. I have handled him. The light reflected off him. He was a real person in the real space, that he was real, and he was tangible. I watched him eat. I watched him sleep. I watched him sweat. You know, he watched all that. He goes, no, he was a person. And I, I did two sermons uh, just on chapter 1. Uh, one of them is called Contact, if you look it up, and the other one's called Jesus is Real. It's the two most popular ones I have. We've, we've had the sermons online for two months now, and those two have been listened to 162 times. So apparently it still resonates with people, is Jesus real? And, and those two, two uh, sermons that we've done on, on that, one, and just in two months we've had, like I said, 162 listens on those. And, and so it's still something that people are searching out. And so John has, has struck the nerve. And so people still wrestle with this. And John is conveying to us again, he goes, I started out by telling you Jesus is real, and he's conveying to us again, Jesus is real, and he's using different terminology. He says water here. I'm pretty sure that by water, and, and a lot agree, I'm not on my own in all this, but that, that water was his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, that he identified with humanity, that he came, and he says, I, I'm one of you. And, and so then he asked to be baptized, again, not for repentance, but to show you that he was, he was one of us, that he was 
like mankind, and that he had to identify with that, and we all identify the same way uh, by baptism. And then the blood, there's he that came by water and blood, was the end of his ministry, I think. He's talking about the crucifixion, the cross. You have to think about that. Jesus, or John, witnessed this. Here the Gnostics are saying that Jesus was not a real human. And John's like, yes, he was. Like I said, he, he said, I, I've been with him when he was hungry. I've been with him when he was tired. I've been with him when he was walking. Uh, he washed my feet. You know, he touched me. He handled me. I, I've seen him do countless physical things. I leaned against him at the Last Supper. You know, he's the one who leaned against Jesus as, as they were sitting next to each other. He, he's there. He goes, I'd rub shoulders with him. We, we've done many things together. He's like, no, he's not a spirit. I saw him when he was whipped. I saw his flesh quiver in pain. I saw the sweat as he was there suffering on the cross on that Friday. He said, I saw the blood, so much blood at a crucifixion. They fillet his back open. Not just his back. They filleted him. They whipped him everywhere. He saw the nails. He saw the Romans roughly grab his arm and put it there and drive them through. saw him in his feet. He saw the crown as it dug through his skin. He saw the roughness in which he was handled. He saw the spear as it pierced his side and water and blood came out. Let's look at that. He does give us an account on that. I mean, look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Again, John's just very consistent. He's real. Don't you be saying that he's not real. Don't you be saying that Jesus... Uh, it was a legend, or Jesus was a spirit, or Jesus was this, or we were all deceived, or he was a hologram projection, or whatever you want to say. No, he was real. He was who he said he was. And it's pretty neat that everything that Christianity faced early on has been able to tackle everything that came in the future. So our Lord knew. So John chapter 19 is John's account of the crucifixion, and it's a pretty short account. And I think because John was there, and it hurt him so bad. And John cared for Mary, and he saw it hurt her so bad. And so it's, it's written as an account from love, but he does include what he includes. And one of them is the piercing of the spear. And so, so John chapter 19, look at verse 31. And the Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that's a preparation day, it says that the body should not, be, should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day. And they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Uh, what he's asking for here is that crucifixion is a long, slow, excruciating process. You drown in your own fluids. You can't breathe anymore. And so, uh, and it was the matter of breathing. We've all heard talk about how they had to push up and down. That's why their feet were nailed that way. So they had to push up and down just to even try to inhale and exhale. And so they'd come along and break their legs. They could no longer push up. It would speed up the death process. And so because it was a high holy day coming, they're like, we don't want them hanging on the cross. Uh, and so they would speed up the process where they might last for days. You know, they were, they were trying to speed up. So they'd break their legs so they couldn't push up and down anymore. But the sacrifice has to be, un, has to be perfect, right? And so there can't be any broken bones. It's like when they offered a lamb. It had to be without spot, without blemish, no broken bones. And so... Here comes the dilemma that he's going to talk about. So verse 32, Then came the soldiers, and they break the legs of the first, and the other which was crucified with him, because there was two thieves. Verse 33, But when they came to Jesus, 
and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Not to fulfill scripture, just because it was practical. Like he's already dead. We don't have to do this. But we need to make sure. And so they do this, verse 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record. This is John speaking. And his record is true. He's like, my eyes didn't lie to me. I was there. I physically saw this. And he knoweth that he saith is true. And he says, and I am writing this down so that you might believe. He said, I watched it. I saw it. This is how it happens. They didn't break his legs. Don't go. That, that can't be a heresy. He was dead already. And they pierced his side. And then he's writing this later. And the Holy Spirit's giving him some answers. Verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. And, and so there's comfort in that in him. There's comfort in that in Mary in that this is fulfilling scripture. It's not just you know, more abuse upon him, but this is fulfilling that God is doing this. And then it shows that he was dead, that Jesus Christ did not survive this. The, the fatal torment of the cross is vital because there are those that argue that he didn't die. And so, but no, he died. And John's like, no, there's no mistaking. He was dead. And they pierced him and, and water and blood came out. So that's an image that, that's very much ingrained in his mind. So um, go back to John chapter, 1 John chapter 5. Verse 6 says, This is he that came by water and blood. So yes, he began his ministry identifying with us. He, he understands because he's now died for us. He's suffered. So not only water only, but also that he died. See, and he has to make that clear because God's God and he knows what would go in the future. And there are many religions out there that say that Jesus did not die on the cross, but someone took his place. Some, there was a switch that happened. It was Jesus' twin brother. It was Judas Iscariot. There's all these different views out there that, that say he came on, or that the Holy Spirit was just, uh, that the Christ was a spirit that ascended on him for a while, and then it went away, so it was just a man who died. He's like, no, it was the one who was baptized. It was the one who was died. It was the one who was 100% human and 100% uh, God. It was him who died. And so John is making that here for us. It was not someone else. It was Jesus. He was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw all these things. Verse Continuing six says, "This is he that came by not, uh, by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood." So he began and, and he ended. And he finished it, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And he says, "You can trust the Spirit. The Spirit will confirm it to you." This, I'm telling you the truth. Verse seven, the Scriptures confirm it too. For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one, the crucifixion, the salvation that comes through that. And the three in one, the three witnesses pointing to the triune God. Three in one. Trinity, that's the God that we worship, is a triune God. Three and yet separate. So God is one in his, in his essential being, but he exists in three persons. Each person of the Godhead is fully God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet they are all unique. Let me go in my basement. <laughs> no, I got my, got my chart. <laughs> so there, ta-da, my big giant notes. And this is the, 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 a chart that, that helps me. It's a very classical one. What it is? We have God that is made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a triangle, which is, you know, one object with three sides, and so that kind of points to it. But uh, the thing I like is the circle that is around it. In their unity, 
The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and yet they are all God. We can apprehend it, but we can't comprehend it. But they're three separate and yet one. That's the triune God of Christianity. Put that back in the basement. But uh, So God appears... That's a, lot, that's a lot of argument. There's a lot of people that have, have a hard time wrapping their mind around that, that. And again, God is not something that we can apprehend in that way. You know, we, we are so much below him, and he is so much above us. Uh, there's a lot of different you know, people like, oh, you can use a pretzel. You know, it's got the three holes, and you know, it's one pretzel. That's pretty good. Time is probably the best one. Time exists. It's one thing, time, but you have to have all three parts for you to be in time. Past, present, and future are all existing all at once, or you don't have time. And yet, the future is yet coming. The past has already happened, and the present is now. And so you're having to travel through all three in one to be in time. That is the best one that makes sense. Uh, but there are so many things that show us the three in one. You know, between music and, and, and all kinds of, the, our, our, even our bodies, we are body, soul, spirit, you know, triunity in that way. There's so many things that just show the fingerprints of God in the three. But there are so many views against him. Uh, even in that, in, in Christianity, is uh, one view is called modalism, that it's one God, but he appears in three different people. In the Old Testament, he's the old man, he has a beard on. In the New Testament, he's Jesus Christ. And yet, or in the Gospels, and in the New Testament, he's the Holy Spirit. You know, so it's one God who goes out and puts on a different costume and comes out in that way. One person playing three parts. No, it's three people, one God. And so, so that's wrong. That's why you're Pentecostals or believe in the modalism in that way. Um, and there are many views in God. You know, a lot of people, you come to the conclusion there has to be. We talked about, about earlier about the people that they know there's something spiritual, they know there's another deeper plane, so they're turning to a witchcraft and everything else. And, and so they, they know it, but there's all these different, Satan does his job in trying to fill it differently. There's pantheism, that uh, God is in the nature. God is in the universe in that way. That, that's him. There's panentheism. Is that says the universe is joined with God. He is the universe. And it goes on, it's a little bit different than that. And yet he is yet greater and it's all real mystical sounding. That's not right. And there's deism. That yes, there is a God, but he does not intervene in the affairs of man. That's not the God of the Bible. He intervened. His son came down and died for us. And so and the deists, you know, they believe in God, but they believe he does not interfere in the things of men. There's misotheism. That there is a God, but he is evil. That's not the God of the Bible. And there's dystheism. Uh, the God, there is a God, but he's not wholly good. Eh, he's mostly good, but he, he still does mean things every once in a while. That's not the God of the Bible. And then there's duotheism, or, or dytheism. It's two different words for the same one. That there are two equally powerful gods that are out there, and they work in concert together, kind of like the yin and the yang, the dark force and the light force in that way. And this is your Wiccans. And this is your Zoroastrisms, and your Gnostics would fall under this camp as well. Uh, they fall in that region. And so that is a growing one that is out there now, with Wicca being the fastest, one of the fastest growing religions in the United States. And so uh, it's to be on guard against that. There's polytheism, that there are multiple gods, and then they all get together at the Pantheon. Uh, so we have to watch out for them. You think of your Greek mythology is a lot that way, and we've talked about that some. There's animism, that God is in every object. He's in a rock, he's in a tree, he's in a leaf, he's in this, he's in all those things. No, he made all these things. He's animal, vegetable, mineral. No, God is a spirit, he is invisible. There's monotheism, that's where we would fall, that there is one God. He is the God of gods, he is Lord of lords. 
He is the one supreme being that all everything else answers to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. That's, that's the, their call uh, together. That's one that they say. To, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I want to say. It's the Akidah, but it, it's, uh, it's the, the what? Shema. Shema, that's it. Thanks. The Akidah is the Father and the Son. Yes, yeah, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So he's one. Uh, Thou art God alone, the psalmist tells us. I am the Lord and there is none else, Isaiah 45 tells us. You know, and so God, and we can go through the scripture, where he tells about all, all of us that he is one, there's none like him, he is above all. And yet there are hints of the three in the Old Testament. How he talks, you know, let us go down and confuse their language, let us make man in our image, and so we have it. And those we have the, and the holy, 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 the, the tri, tri, trihedron. It's called how, how they, when the angels would sing out, it's always in threes. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that, that's in the Old Testament and in Revelation as well we have that. Uh, and the threefold ironic blessing, it seems like it's in that way. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That is said in threes, you know, they, they point to that. And you could do a whole study just on the threes that go throughout Scripture in that way, pointing to him. At the baptism, we, we covered that. Uh, they have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that are there. Um, in the Great Commission, when he tells us to go out in Matthew 28, to baptize them, Jesus Christ tells us, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, he names all three. Jesus' teaching always talks about, he's praying to the Father, that he's going to send the Son. Uh, I'm, I'm going to to the Father now. I pray that he'll send the other comforter, the Holy Spirit, to come and instruct you. I must go away so that he may come and all this. And, and, he, and he teaches us all that, John 14, 16 through 17, calls of those. Uh, all three are called God. We could do a whole study just going through to where they go through and they call the Father God throughout Scripture. They go through and they call Jesus Christ God. And when they go through and they call the Holy Spirit God, like when Ananias and Sapphira, um, when they lied. And Peter says, you have lied unto God when you lied to the Holy Spirit. And so they, they, they call all three of them God. All three are involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All three are involved in all these things. So they're all there. And uh, the fa- Jesus is pointing to the Father and the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. And so they're all there working together in this triunity. And as God's family, John wants us to know the right God. And so he's put this in here for us, that these three are in agreement. It's the triune God. That it's Jesus, yes, but he prayed to the Father, and there's the Holy Spirit, and they're all three one, and they are all God. Because he doesn't want us falling for any one of these false upstarts who's going to come in and try to sneak his way in in that way. He wants us to have confidence in God and whom we trust. I want you to know who he is. I want you to know that he is real. And that at his outset, there was the Trinity and at the crucifixion, that he is there, that he goes to the Father, he sends the Spirit. He said all this, it's all pointing to him. It's all there to him. Have confidence in who it is that you believe in and who he is that he is. And who it is, he is who he says he is. And he doesn't want us fooled by agnosticism. He doesn't want us fooled by any other false religion that is out there. You can see God throughout the Bible. And we can study and we can see and you can be confirmed again and again and again. And I would challenge you to do so if it's something you have curiosity in. Because he does not want us to be deceived. Because he's going to come and he's going to try to pass it off. The evil one is. He's going to try to say that he is God. He's going to try to do fantastic things to declare that he is. But the Bible is very specific on who he is and when he would be here and what he is doing when he was here. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of those. And so even if there comes a false prophet saying that he is God on the earth, if his feet are on the ground, we know he's a liar, right? Because we are told when he departed that we'll see him coming in the air when everyone recognizes him. Yet there's going to come one that's going to deceive so, so many. 
John here wants us to know in his clothing argument here in, in chapter 5 is that Jesus was really here. He was a real man. And he was really God. And he really died. And he was really buried. And he really rose again. And you too can have resurrection. Trust in him. It's in him whom we do it. That's how he starts out. This is, this is whom we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the one who had this public ministry, the one who did this in front of everyone. They didn't do it in some corner, as Paul talks about. He said, no, he did it publicly when the world was all there, concentrated to be able to record it and spread it around the world. Trust him. Be confident in him. And get busy about the Father's business as family members. So that's what he wants us to do. And he wants us to have confidence in our salvation. And he goes over again and again, repent and trust. Have you done this? Are you one of his? And as a family member, have you gone the same way as Jesus did? Have you died to yourself through the blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you taken that and, poured it, you know, and, and, and uh, applied it to the doorpost of your heart? Have you been baptized? Have you done that? Is it important for your salvation? No. Is it important for your, fo- uh, your fellowship and walk with him in your public ministry? Yes. It is you humbling, being obedient to the Father, saying that, yes, I identify with him. Yes, I will do as he did. Yes, I want to be counted as his. I want to be faithful and obedient unto him. And so he wants us to do that so we can be busy about the master's business so that we can have this confidence to go out and fight in this dark and evil world. And so uh, if you're here today and you know him as Savior, have confidence in who he is and what he is doing. And what he's doing through you. Be obedient. Have we been obedient? It's time to search and to see it. Am I? Have I? Do we need to do something to be more obedient? Um, he's given us the Christian bar of soap. If we've fallen off the wagon, that we can get back and, and, and fellowship with him. Uh, we have the Christian 44 that he's given us, right? To, to remind us that we have God on our side. You know, that, that if we repent and trust in him, that we have him. That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have victory through that. We know who he is, that he's the triune God. We know that he was the one who was buried and rose again, that he's the one who comes and promises us resurrection. And he wants us to have confidence in who he is. The one who started out his life, uh, his ministry, with the baptism, the water, ended it through the cross, fulfilling all the scriptures from beginning to end. Nothing is left undone. And we can be confident about who he is and what he's done. And we need to live so. Uh, Let's close in prayer.